Today's scripture reading is from uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over all the livestock, and all, over all the earth, and all, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. It's great to be here. How was uh, re-entry into the work week? Yeah, hard, right? <laughs> and uh, one of the things that Emory and I have noticed over the years, uh, the reason why we dub it re-entry is because there's a lot of friction, right? A lot of friction, not only between just entering the workplace, but if you're married or newly married, what you're experiencing also is what? A lot of friction between each other as you re-enter all this rest and then now work and you're bickering and you're fighting and to be expected. It's a hard thing. And Maria and I noticed years ago and, and dubbed it the concept of re-entry. Um, the idea... I actually read about re-entry on Encyclopedia Britannica, and uh, this is what it said. If the re-entry angle is too shallow, the spacecraft will skip or bounce off the atmosphere and back into space. If the angle is too great, the heat shield will not survive the extreme heating rates, uh, nor the spacecraft the high forces of deceleration. So why, why when we re-enter work, are we tempted to just stay in sort of the restful uh, downtime that we've had on break and, and sort of skip back into space? Well, why is it so hard if we just dive right back into the work and we do it with all of the gusto that we can muster? Why is it so difficult? One of the things that makes reentry so difficult is that we often have an intense struggle with what we do for a living. We have an intense struggle with what we do for a living. And there's a sense of being stuck sometimes in order to make a living, but not feeling like our work has a lot of dignity to it. Our culture is increasingly divided between the better paid knowledge classes and the more poorly paid service sector. A lot of you are in the service sector, and so you felt this directly. And most of us accept these kinds of various judgments that divide whether our judgment is about the work of others around us or our own work and ourselves. Does Christianity have any, anything to say about that? Anything to say about this divide that we tend to make? About the dignity of our work, whatever the type? About accepting and making those kinds of value judgments? Does it have anything to say? Surprisingly, Christianity has an enormous amount to say about what our work is and about our relationship to it. There's a tremendous amount to say, and that's what our series, The Gospel and Work, that we're looking at is looking at. What does the gospel mean to us and to our work and to how we uh, live our life day to day and, and the thing that we spend our most time doing? Most of us spend more time working than doing anything else but sleeping. Did you know that? Most of our waking hours are spent in that. So what we're going to do today is look at this, this simple idea from Genesis. We're going to look at the fact that work of all kinds, whether it's work with your hands or whether it's knowledge-based work, work of all kinds 
evidences our dignity as people. Why? Because it reflects the image of God, the creator in us. Work of all kinds evidences the image of God, our creator in us. So we're going to look at just two points today. And we're going to look at what the evidence of dignity in our work is not. We have to have something to contrast it with. And most of those are assumptions that are just embedded in us, and we've never questioned them. And so I want to take a look at some of those assumptions. And we're also going to look at the evidence of dignity uh, for our work, what it is, what it is. What does the Bible actually teach? What does Christianity actually teach that it is? All right, so without further ado, let me pray for us, and let's get into it. Heavenly Father, we need you. We want to know you better through your word. We, uh, we need you to understand it to apply it to our lives, to be transformed by it. Uh, we and our own strength are not enough to do that. And so teach us about who you are and uh, what you mean to us and what that means to our lives as we study your word together. Be with us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what the evidence of a dignity of our work is not. Verse 26, what does it say? It says, then God said, and look through the sentence, let them have dominion over. Let them have dominion over. Now, the concept is this. that the, the, What Scripture is teaching here, the concept of what it is not, is that work is not a necessary evil. We looked at that a little bit last week. That work was actually created before the fall of mankind. Before we uh, degraded into sin and misery of sin and death, separation from God, and that had influence and effect on everything that we do. And we're going to talk about that. It's not today we're going to talk about it, but we're going to talk about that in this series. I was talking with Jeff King uh, just this week, and one of the things is that there's such a significant frustration with work from day to day. It doesn't meet your expectations. It doesn't, you work with, uh, and you try to make a difference in what you're doing, and it doesn't work, and there's frustration that happens. We'll talk about the frustration of work. But today what we need to do is see the dignity. And the dignity of work from the Bible teaches, teaches that our, our relationship to work is not a necessary evil. That comes from Greek philosophy influencing our view, view of work. Think about this. In Greek thought, there was the contemplative life versus the practical life. The contemplative life versus the practical life. And for us that translates into either leisure or pleasure versus our work week, right? So the practical life. And um, there's a, a Christian philosopher named uh, Lee Hardy who has a book called The Fabric of This World, Inquiries into Calling, Career Choice, and the Design of Human Work. And Lee Hardy writes this. He says, The ancient Greeks associated work with that endless cycle of activity forced upon us by embodied existence. For bodies, both animal and human, are not self-sufficient. If we fail to regularly feed, clothe, and protect them from the elements, they expire. Thus, hunting, farming, cooking, spinning, weaving, sewing, construction, plumbing, road work, and the like were all seen as various activities in which our existence is bound over to the biological order of necessity. If we are to survive, we must work. Through work, we may have managed to stay alive for a while, and then he asks, but to what end? And that's the question of the Greek philosopher. To what end? They too spent, we did nothing, it says, though we may have uh, managed to stay alive for a while, but to what end? Uh, we did nothing to distinguish ourselves from animals, from animals and the rest of the created order. They too spend their whole life ministering to the daily recurrent needs of the body, a life dominated 
by such work is a life condemned to animal futility. We work in order to eat and eat in order to work until our bodies wear down, die, and disintegrate, leaving nothing behind but the dust from which they came. This was very prevalent, very undergirding the basic uh, philosophy of Greek thought. We see it in various ways. Uh, one of the things that we see deals with the contemplative life. Uh, in Aristotle, it was uh, the practical life in a higher form, and then when it moved to Plato, it became the contemplative life, something distinct in and of itself. Think about it. Greeks sought to escape the necessity of work altogether and live in a way that takes part in the immortality of the gods, takes part in that immortality. And the trick was this. The trick was this, to come into a position whereby one would not have to engage in the work necessary for survival, but rather be free to pursue worthwhile activities, practical activities, such as great deeds in the political realm or courageous acts of military conflict. The answer, and this is important, as we check our own assumptions at the door and we think about what Christianity has to say about our work and our relationship to it and dignity, one of the things we have to realize is the Greek society gave an answer to this question, and it can be summarized in one word, slavery slavery. If a man were wealthy enough to own slaves, then they could take care of all of the necessary work, leaving him free to pursue the life of honor through the accomplishment of some great and noble deed. Aristotle was a key leader in this kind of view. In fact, he would went so far as to argue that the differences between somebody who would lead in politics, in the political realm, in the higher level of productivity, in the uh, political sphere, uh, and the person who would do the menial work of every day, there was actually a difference in being. Aristotle would argue that there's a difference in the kind of humanity that you were, that some people were born, Aristotle would say, to be slaves. He says, some people are just cut out to be slaves. Who are they? Those who, to put it delicately, have an underdeveloped capacity for rational thought and deliberation. In other words, the dumb ones. Especially the dumb ones with big, slightly stooped bodies. These people Aristotle called natural slaves. You can see that in his politics. They were to engage in the productive work with the private realm of the household, thereby making it possible for the independently wealthy members of the leisure class to engage in the political activity within the public space of the city the Greek city-state. The Greek solution to the futility of mortal life was by no means a wholly democratic one. Only the rich and the powerful were to be released from the necessity of work. The rest were condemned to it by force. Now, that separation from producing and productivity, but in spheres of living, in spheres of living that were sort of like naturally, Aristotle would have argued that it was naturally present in our humanity, that we have that kind of division in us based on just how we're born and our genetics. Plato took it further, and he said the Greek philosopher, um, although he agreed with Aristotle, the life of practical activity in the political domain is decidedly superior to the life of productive work in the economy, but what they held was that there was an even higher way of life. And Plato brought this up distinctively. There was a higher way of life than the productive way of life. And that was a life in which the noblest of human potentials could be realized through the contemplative life and the mind. And we're in the information age, so this should ring true to you. You need to listen to this. 
the life of the mind. Through the contemplative life, not the practical, we come closest to the true form of divine life and thereby achieve the highest possible degree of human happiness. That's Plato. Now, what you have to see is that Greek thought then worked its way into the life of the church and the thought of the church. And so the basic Greek attitude towards work, Lee Hardy writes this, the, grace, the basic Greek attitude towards work and its place in human life was largely preserved in both the thought and practice of Christians, especially during the Middle Ages. And it's, uh, he writes that not until the Reformation do we see some of these basic um, thoughts and assumptions that were Greek about human nature overturned. And the purpose of human life and the meaning of work were effectively overthrown at that point. But we don't see it until that point. And yet some of those things from the Middle Ages are smuggled into our understanding of our relationship to work and faith and, and what we do in belief and, and as Christians, or what we do as humans even. But it shouldn't come as a surprise. The gospel, the gospel after all, was initially proclaimed to a culture a culture that was dominated by the world and life view of the Greeks. And many of the church fathers, having been brought up on Greek philosophy, interpreted the basics of the gospel through the framework of Greek thought. And it was generally agreed that the highest of human activities was the activity of the mind, the contemplative life. Now, Augustine, for instance, maintains that the con contemplation of God is promised. St. Augustine said the contemplation of God has promised us as the goal of all of our actions and the eternal perfection of happiness. That's Augustine. And then Aquinas in the Middle Ages, he was the preeminent theologian of the 13th century. And Aquinas said this, he states in his Summa Theologica that the contemplation of divine truth is the goal of all of human life. This is because the contemplative life is according to that which is most proper to man, namely his intellect. Now, what's interesting about this is that Aquinas goes on to, to comment. He comments on the summary Jesus gave, gave um, in the summary of the law that he gave of the Old Testament. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave a summary of that law. And he said, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Aquinas, in his, from the Bible, began to feel conflict in this divide that he inherited through Greek thought, through these categories. And the conflict was this. Uh, Aquinas states, the, the summary that Jesus gave to love God and to love neighbor yourself, to love God, Aquinas states, is to desire to think about him. He equated loving God with thinking about God. And the love of God thus leads to the solitary life of the contemplative. Now, as an introvert, I really like that statement. But he goes on. He says, the love of one neighbor, the love of one's neighbor on the other hand, leads to the act of life, the life spent in service to others. But if we were to put ourselves in the service of others, we would no longer enjoy the tranquil solitude necessary for sustained progress in the contemplative life. The demands for action in response to the other's needs would constantly interrupt our religious project. And so he says, in a sense, it is evident that the act of life impedes the contemplative because it is impossible for anyone to be involved in external works and at the same time give himself to divine contemplation. Thus, the two requirements of the law seem to draw a person in the opposite direction. They seem to draw a person in the exact opposite ways. The love of God bids us to come out of the world and spend time alone with God in contemplative thought and meditation and prayer. And the love of neighbor draws us into the world and into a life of active service. 
Aquinas didn't know what to do. And so one of the things that he decided upon, which many of us have decided upon, is that the idea of which activity should be given precedence, Aquinas' answer was the contemplative, for it better accords with our nature and ends as rational animals. All right, so that divide, those basic categories from Greek thought on, had infiltrated the church and are a big part of where the church has thought about life and work and the gospel and work. And yet that, that divide stands. That challenge of Jesus' command stands. And the evidence of dignity in our work is not importing Greek categories into what the Bible teaches about the dignity of work. And so we're going to have to work together to see what that is. Now, what are some of the ways that you might have imported some of the Greek thought and categories into your relationship to work as you're considering what does it look like to be faithful as, a, as somebody who's pursuing God, as somebody who wants to be spiritual, and yet somebody who wants to take their work seriously? What is the relationship? Some of the mistakes uh, we've talked about are uh, we have a companion book that we're reading along uh, to our study on Sundays and to our home meeting curriculum. And the companion book is Every Good Endeavor by uh, Dr. Keller. And in there, he, he illustrates several, um, several mistakes that are imported into our daily lives. Here are some of the common ones. And still influence the church, but shouldn't. Work is a necessary evil. We've already argued against that. The idea is that the only good work in view, or the only good work is, is the view that work helps to make us money so that we can support our families and pay others to do menial work. I had neighbors who had that view when I was in, living in Manhattan. They would never do menial work themselves. And I asked them about that. I said, well, it's, it's beneath us, you know. And lower, the second thing is the lower status and lower paying work is an assault on our dignity. That's a common perception that's still held in the church. Lower status and lower paying work is an assault on our dignity. And so one of the results of this belief is that many people will take jobs, many people will take jobs that they're not suited for at all. Choosing to aim for careers that don't fit with their gifts, but instead fit with a promise for higher wage and prestige. And so our culture is increasingly divided around those Greek categories, right? Knowledge kinds of productivity and labor kinds of productivity. And then many people will choose to be unemployed rather than do work they feel is beneath them. And most service and manual labor falls into this category. Often people who have made it into the knowledge professions and classes show great disdain for the concierges and the handymen and the waiters and dry cleaners and cooks and gardeners. And you can see it in culture all the time. One of the things that Anne-Marie and I thought about for years, we both spent our share of years waiting tables. And one of the things that we noticed as we did that for years is that we came up with the idea that, you know, we thought it should be mandatory that everyone, everyone, should have to make their living solely on what they get from waiting tables for six months to a year. No other source of income. And, re and, and see what it's like to relate to others who have an uh, inherent sort of view of disdain of you when you're serving them. It's, it's phenomenal what you encounter in people when you put yourself in an area of service to benefit them and the hierarchy in their own mind that comes out in just the very basic way that they talk to you. Now, not, not everybody's like this, but any waiter will tell you that that's definitely what happens. It's definitely what happens. It's not limited to that. So 
look, earlier we noted that in our culture, it's increasingly divided between better paid knowledge classes and the more poorly paid um, service sector. And most of us accept that these kinds of value judgments about the divide, whether our judgment is about the work of others or about our own work. Most of us accept that. And when you do that, what are you doing? You're importing Greek categories into your thought as, as a Christian or as somebody who's seeking after God and understanding what it would mean to incorporate faith and work together. What Christianity teaches couldn't be further from that truth. One of the biblical scholars, Derek Kidner, writes this. He notices something profound in creation of animals and human beings in Genesis chapter 1. And he writes, only man is set apart and given a job description and office, as it were. In other words, while the plants and animals are simply called a team and reproduce, only humans, only humans are explicitly given a job. They are called to subdue and have dominion over the earth. So what does this now require of us? If that's true, if these are things that shouldn't be the things that we hold on to, if these are not what God is talking about as far as the dignity of work is concerned, then what should we do? Well, one thing you need to do is just examine your own value judgments about better paid knowledge classes and the more poorly paid service sectors. Upon what do you base your value judgment? What's your criteria for making that decision? Is it based on what the author of Genesis says here? That we're to subdue the earth, that we're to rule over it. There's dignity inherent in work. Do you believe that? Or are you working out of old categories that are not part of what, what the Bible and Christianity teach and what the gospel is all about? Well, where does God require you to think about those things? In everything, whether it's what you do or what others do, wherever you're at, are you a student? Are you in the service industry? Are you in the knowledge industry? Are you a CEO? Are you unemployed? And whatever you do, there's inherent dignity in what it is that you do. Why? Because verse 26, then God said, let them have dominion over. So, what evidence of dignity in our work is not? But then our last point is what it is. We need to look at what it is. And what we're saying is that work of all kinds, work of all kinds, whether it's with our hands or with our mind, evidences our dignity as human beings because it does what? Because it reflects the glory and image of God in the, of the creator in us. Work does that. Verse 26 and 27, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And in 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this is fascinating because this is unlike, this is unlike thought until uh, this time biblical view of what was going on is unlike thought in the world around. Uh, we are given specific work to do because we were made in God's image. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Genesis teaches. We're given specific work to do because we're made in God's image. So what does that mean? What does it mean? One of the, uh, there's a Old Testament scholar who wrote a really fantastic book. His name is Alec Motier. It's spelled a little funky though. Alec is L-E. A-L-E-C, and Motier is M-O-T-Y-E-R. So he has a book called Look to the Rock, an Old Testament background to our understanding of Christ. It's great. I mean, it's scholarly if you want to hit it at that level, but it's a really profound book, an important read for understanding um, 
how it all kind of fits together. And so he writes this. Agmatir writes this. The rulers of the ancient Near East set up images and statues of themselves in places where they exercised or claimed to exercise authority. Images or statues of themselves in places where they exercised or claimed to exercise authority. The images represented the ruler himself as symbols of his presence and authority. And so we come to it. To rule, to have dominion over, is to stand in for God here in the world. One of the things we noted last week is that God not only evidenced his, creator, uh, his creative tendencies in the creation, but he also, part of the way he does that is to care for it in an ongoing way. And how does he do that? Through one another. He engages us in that. And the example we used was build a chair. Some of you can build a chair. But have you thought about what it would take to actually build that if you did everything related to that chair yourself? What about the nails? Well, have you thought about what it would take to mine the ore? And what kind of tools would you use to mine the ore? And then how would you refine it? And how would you melt it down? And, and what are you going to run it through to make those nails? What kind of mold? You have to build the mold. How are you going to do that? And so it's the interrelatedness of our work together in the very basic ways of life that bring out God's ongoing care and he, where we stand in for him and we do that for one another. We do that together. So there's a close connection of Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, with the mandate to rule. It shows us that the act of ruling, the act of ruling is a defining aspect of what it means to be made in God's image. The act of ruling and subduing. We're called to stand in for God here in the world in the very basic work that we've been given to do. Exercising stewardship over the rest of creation and his places as vice regents. There's royalty in it. There's dignity in it. We share in doing the things that God has done in creation, bringing order out of chaos and creatively building a civilization out of the material, of physical, and human nature, caring for all that God has made. It's a major part of what we were created for. And so while the Greek thinkers saw ordinary work, especially manual labor, especially manual labor as relegating beings to the animal level, the Bible sees work as distinguished in humanity, distinguishing people from being, the, being from the animals. They're distinguished from, we're distinguished from the animals. And in the Bible, work is elevated to a place of dignity. One of the Old Testament scholars wrote it this way. Victor Hamilton notes that the surrounding cultures such as Egypt and Mesopotamia, the kings of, or other, others of royal blood might be called the image of God. But he knows that rarefied term was not applied to the canal digger or to the mason who worked on the ziggurat. But Genesis chapter 1 uses royal language to describe simply people, human beings. And in God's eye, all of mankind, all of mankind is royal. And so the Bible democratizes the royalistic and exclusivistic concepts of the nations that surrounded Israel. It's profound. It means that all work has dignity, whether it's knowledge work, or whether it's work with our hands. It has dignity because it's something that God does and because we do it in God's place as his representatives. We do it with him, representing him. And so then we learn that work not only has dignity in itself, 
but also that all kinds of work have dignity. One of the profound things is that God's own work in Genesis 1 and 2, what is it? What kind of labor is it? There are lots of things to say about it, but one of the things you can say about it is that it's manual labor. It's manual labor. What's he doing with the dust of the earth? He's shaping. He's shaping us. He's deliberately putting a spirit into a physical body, right? And as he plants a garden, he asks humans to till it, to subdue it, to cultivate it. Work of all kinds, whether with the hands or the mind, evidences our dignity as humans because it reflects the image of God and the creator of us. Uh, Ernest Gordon was, for years he was the uh, dean of chapel at um, Princeton Seminary. And he was a Scotsman, and he had lived through World War II, and he had lived through a very intense internment camp. And one of the things that happened during the internment camp was that uh, there were there were some miraculous things that happened with faith, but one of the specific things that happened to help bring out the dignity of all kinds of work was that there were people who were conductors, and there were people who were uh, poets, and there were people who were uh, of all different kinds of areas of life. There were craftsmen, and together they began to work to do what? Well, the musicians wanted to be able to, the, the conductor wanted to be able to lead a symphony, and there were some musicians there as well, but they needed, they needed paper to write the scores down, and they needed to be able to look at that, and they're in the jungle, and they have no resources. So the craftsmen who were skilled worked together from the surrounding plants and trees and started to build instruments according to the specifications that they were given by the ones who played them. And there were people who made paper out of the leaves of the tree. And there's scores written down from the ink of the berries. Entire scores reproduced from memory from the conductors. And that ended up that there were symphonies in this open jungle in the woods because of the way that everybody came to work together, dignified, in their work. And they produced music. And they produced plays. They had plays. They wrote entire plays. They wrote musicals with people singing and learning lines and going back and forth. And they did their grueling manual labor that killed them every day. And it was exactly that contrast, the forced, grueling evil of what they were pressed to do every day in repetitive fashion, the thing that was cutting them down by the hundreds of thousands, forced them to look at work and say, what does it mean? And when they discovered that the, there's dignity based into the, woven into the basic fabric of work, they were transformed as a community. So much so that even their guards would come and watch the concerts. Work of all kinds, whether with the hands or in the mind, evidences our dignity as human beings because it reflects the image of God, our creator in us. Work of all kinds. So what does God require of you and me? One of the things that we have to do is reevaluate, reevaluate the evidence of dignity in our own work in light of the gospel. In light of the gospel. Our relationship to work is guided by the dignity that God gives it, not by the things and notions that we've grown up with or that we just assume to be true. So what is that? Dr. Keller writes in, his, in the companion reader that we're reading along in his book, Every Good Endeavor, 
He writes, all work has dignity because it reflects God's image in us. And also because the material creation we are called to care for is good. The Greeks saw death as a friend because it liberated us from the prison of physical life. The Bible sees death not as a friend, but as an enemy. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Because the created world is brilliant and beautiful and good. Genesis 1. And it's destined to exist forever. Revelation 22. We're not going to what Plato conceptualizes as some sort of ultimate spiritual state that is disembodied from the physical. It's not the absence of the physical, but it's actually the complete wovenness, wovenness of physical and spiritual together, harmonized in one in the new heavens and new earth. Indeed, he writes, the biblical doctrine of creation harmonizes with the doctrine of the incarnation in which God takes upon himself a human body and of the resurrection in which God redeems not just the soul but the body to show how deeply pro-physical Christianity is. For Christians, even our ultimate future is a physical one. Some views of reality see spiritual as more real and true than the physical. Others, more naturalistic, uh, see the spiritual as illusory and the physical as the only real thing. But neither is true of the Bible. Neither is true of Christianity. In Psalm 65, verses 9 and 10, and in Psalm 104, verse 30, we find God cultivating the ground. Pay attention here. God cultivating the ground by watering it through rain showers and through his Holy Spirit, renewing the face of the ground. However, in John 16, verses 8 through 11, the Holy Spirit is said to convict and convince people of sin and God's judgment. And that's the work of the preacher. That's what the preacher does. So here we have God's Spirit both gardening and preaching the gospel. Gardening and preaching. Both are God's work. So how can we say that one kind of work is high and noble and the other is low and debasing? How can we say that? I was noticing as I was reading uh, about these distinctions and thinking about Christianity and thinking about my own faith and my own work, that Western relationship to work either falls down on one side or another of this dilemma that Aquinas originally felt in Jesus' command. There's love God and love of neighbor. And love God, it's contemplative life. It falls down. It tends to fall down on that side. There's a secular version of that. That's the contemplative life in philosophy. And there's a religious version of that, the contemplative life in theology. But in and of itself, it's not enough. It's not enough to follow Jesus' command. Or the love the neighbor, the practical. So we have the contemplative, but we have the practical. And love the neighbor, we have the secular version. It's focused on the self. And for the Greeks, it was the practical life. And practical life would serve philosophical pursuits. And there was class division. There was actually nature division, if you go back as far as Aristotle. In Marx, there was communal life, serves freedom for everyone to engage in, in the free and productive activity of culture. In Freud, the super, it was the superego regulated life, right? Serving our desires toward that which gives us pleasure. And there's the religious version. The practical life served the needs of others, but it would get in the way of the contemplative life and the study of theology. So how do you follow Jesus' command? How do you reconcile this tension? It's only in the gospel that it happens. There's a minister and author, Philip Jensen, he puts it this way. If God came into the world, what would he be like? 
what would it be like for the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. For the ancient Romans, he might have looked like a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? He comes as a carpenter. He comes as a carpenter. You remember um, Eugene Peterson wrote that great paraphrase of the Bible called The Message. And for John 1.14, he paraphrases like this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. That's right. Only in Jesus do we see those two poles held together. And whatever you work you do, whether it's with the hinds, with your hands or with your mind, you've got to realize that it has dignity. And the Son of God came to be the ultimate servant for you, the ultimate worker for you, the one who had ultimate dignity for you. It's hard. We're going to talk about the frustrations of work, as I, as I mentioned. But one of the things you've got to realize is that you face work, and you try to think, okay, how can I look at my work? I'm not liking it right now. How do I deal with the dignity? We're going to get to some practical suggestions, but the very first place you have to start was the one who came in to the most ordinary work of all, being a poor, ancient Near Eastern, marginalized human being, born of a poor family, when he had every right to rule all things as God. He made himself subject to the sufferings that we suffer and took those on perfectly so that we wouldn't have to. And so that we wouldn't have to look at the work of our hands and the work that we've been given to do with frustration and futility. Why? Because he did the work, the ultimate work needed on our behalf. He overcame the power of sin and death. And he brought new life into being through his resurrection from the dead. And he conquered the things that would hold you back from showing and testifying the image of God and the glory of God in the work that you do. He overcame those things. So that now you can work in a different way. You don't have to avoid work. You can go right at it because everything matters. And in the end, the nail marks, the work that Jesus did, the authors, of the, new, the, the, tell, the authors of the Bible that tell us about the new heavens and new earth point out that they're there. You can see them. You can see the work that he did. The work that we have now and do now has continuity in the new heavens and earth in eternity. Jesus changed the nature of that for you so that the work that you can do now can be transformed. Your relationship to can be transformed. You can see the inherent dignity of what you do. And others around you can be transformed. Why? because you're modeling what our Savior modeled, that humans have dignity in the work that they do. And so there's no task too large or too small because of the mighty one who was infinite beyond measure became finite and was subject to death on a cross. Do you believe that? Now we have a lot of exciting things to look at as we study the gospel and work over the weeks. But for this week, I want you to think about dignity in the work that you do, wherever you're at, whether you're a student, whether you're a knowledge worker, whether you're a laborer in some way or some in service industry. Think about the work that you do. Think about its inherent dignity and the way that it would relay the image of God to not only yourself but to others around you. Begin to pray about that. Pray about that in your home meetings together. And let's be transformed in the community about the dignity of our work and the image of God in that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
we're grateful that you haven't left us to this to be subject to the frustration of our toil but that you came <clears throat> to renew both body and spirit you came to transform us and to make us like you and you've promised to complete the work that you've begun and so we ask for you to do that lord and do that in us in practical ways day in and day out week to week give us wisdom give us depth of insight into knowledge of your love for us and how you would transform us, but also the knowledge of practically how to subdue and have authority over the work of our hands. Transform us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.